0: You come from a particular background. I come from a particular background. That, Wait a minute. That, will you listen? Why do you,
1: will you, get, why do you get so close?
0: Will you listen? Black people are emotional. That's my explanation.
1: White people are. Oh my God! Listen. Will you it's do? It's not a black I feel white like, thing. Why do you have to get so will close? Will you just
0: listen? Will you listen?
1: I'm listening, Kevin. Yesterday You're,
0: was a building point. Why, you happen to be. Why
1: do you get so? I don't understand that.
0: That's my culture.
1: That has nothing to do it. with your culture. Yes, it does. It does not That's part it. of the problem. Get off what do you the know black black about? White thing. It's I'm a reality. Look at, of, look at
0: Los Angeles. Look at Los Angeles. How are you gonna say? What, what you gonna say? What are you gonna do about it? If you're sick What are you me? gonna do? Hit me. No. And then you go. You said that yesterday. Why what do you? Are you su- why do you assume? Because I'm a black man. I'm gonna hit you. That's no. soon. Yes, I, you do.
2: This is the true story of three people picked to revisit millennial pop culture, have their opinions taped, and find out what happens when film school graduates stop being polite and start getting real. I'm Chris, the podcast host most likely to slap one of my fellow cast members before returning to work at Seattle's cutting edge alternative rock radio station, KNDD 107.7, The End.
3: (laughs) I'm Becky, I'm the podcast host most likely to get slapped by my housemate as I'm literally leaving the show.
4: (laughs) (laughs) And I'm Seth, the host most likely to squeeze his butt and then ask for an autograph.
2: (laughs) What? What season was that? in this episode when we were young is getting real for real (laughs) really (laughs) every other episode of the podcast has had some layer of artifice but now we're peering behind the curtain peeling back some layers showing you our true selves we will not be polite there may be name calling there may be heated arguments about race gender and sexuality and there will very likely be some slapping, as we passionately, <laughs> authentically, and perhaps ignorantly discuss our individual unique perspectives on MTV's The Real World, which turns 30 years old this May.
3: Oh, 30 years.
2: <laughs> that so That's awful. causing me dismay. <laughs> <laughs> so which one of us is the token gay? <laughs> Which one of us is going to behave outrageously, <laughs> and which one of us is so sheltered that their mind is going to be blown by all the diversity of opinion on this podcast?
4: I think all three are Seth. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also the little Mormon girl, and I'm also naked in a hot tub right now, as we record.
2: Find out as we get real. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Jumping back in the to Saturday. Was it good cause we were young? Was it good cause we were dumb? Do we think it'll suddenly suck? Now we're jaded and all grown up There was so much that we loved Do we think it'll make the cut?
2: As we have so subtly alluded to in this episode, we're discussing The Real World, which debuted on MTV in May 1992. It redefined both MTV as a channel, which previously had been associated with music videos, as well as the entire concept of what audiences are interested in watching on TV, with an influence that is still very much a part of what people are watching on TV today. One of the things that stands out when you go back to the first season, which we'll talk about a little later on, is just how new and revolutionary the idea of normal people being filmed and being watched was in the early 90s. So, in light of that, I have a little bit of an opening question for you guys, which is, what is your history as a child or teenager with being on camera? Did you have much experience being videotaped? Did you like being photographed or videotaped? And has your relationship to that changed at all since you were young?
3: Um, I don't think there was many pictures taken of me growing up because I didn't like how I looked. I mean, and cameras were not anywhere near as widespread as they are now on our phones. I would say starting mid high school is when you, you know, you had those like cameras.
4: Uh-huh. I don't yeah, know what you, you w- call them. You wind up the film. Disposable cameras? Disposable, that's yes. it. You just
3: would get it at CBS.
2: <laughs> it's been so long, we have forgotten the name. Yeah,
3: and sometimes you could buy them with frames that would be around that's your right. your picture. Right. And sometimes I would accidentally get the one with the frame when I didn't want the frame, so then it would have, like, <laughs> Happy Easter underneath pictures of me and my
4: friends. So. Or, like, it's your uncle's funeral, and there are rainbows and unicorns.
3: I remember once we got one that was, like, religious. So it was, like, <laughs> the Lord has spoken or something. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I wish all my old pictures had the Lord spoken on them. <laughs>
3: But in mid-high school, I would get together with my friends and we would make movies and we would just have fun with a video camera and and shoot different movies on the weekends and show it to our friends. And had YouTube existed then, I'm sure we would have put them on YouTube. I don't know how much of an audience we would have besides our friends, but maybe we would have tried harder knowing that people outside of our friends could watch it. Because I think that we had a lot of funny ideas, but we would have thought of stuff that wasn't just in jokes. wasn't jokes so I would say like I really wish YouTube existed then because I think some of our stuff it really was in a sketch way funny enough for outsiders
4: to view. I would have subscribed and liked.
3: Thank you. I would say starting around then is when I was like comfortable on camera and like wanted to like act in my friends movies and make my own movies and then I, there was like a brief stint when I was doing like Upright Citizens Brigade and I was just around a lot of people making sketches and videos and I kind of felt like that that's what I wanted to do, but I think ultimately I'm just not a person who wants to be in front of the camera, like once or twice for something fun. That you know, like uh, like my husband will make music videos, and I'll be like, oh, I'll cameo in one. You know, I don't want to be the star, but it's not something he I didn't like... let
4: you be the star. Did he? Is this a Lucy situation? <laughs> He's a real spotlight stealer. Uh, that one, Mike, better than Nicole Kidman. <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> So like, I'm okay with like something really like low stakes. <laughs> I think when I got to college and I took an auditioning on camera class that I was like, I don't want to do this. <laughs> this is not something that I want to pursue professionally, take the time it takes <laughs> to like be good at it. So I think that's when I was like, nope, this is actually
4: not for me. That's fascinating. And this is a really interesting question. Because obviously, we've all talked about the the different ways in which we are Very performative characters. Surprisingly, I have very little screen time. Far too little, if you ask me, and you did. (laughs) (laughs) As I've discussed before, I did plays, you know, throughout kindergarten through eighth grade two a year during the school year, and at least one every summer, so I got a whole lot of stage time. And I've talked about forever, exhaustively on this show, that I loved movies, so it's kind of surprising to me in retrospect that I didn't make more home movie-style things. We had a VHS camcorder at home, but it mostly got used, you know, to film me at plays or to film me at like piano recitals or getting the honor roll or like graduation ceremonies or things like that. We don't really have all that many home movies of me from other times of my life when I wasn't winning chintzy medals and trophies. There are lots of photos of me because my mom had a camera, not a disposable camera, but like a 35mm camera, and, you know, used to be the person who would take a lot of photos at family gatherings or on vacations. I haven't seen... Many of those photos, like you were talking about, Becky, uh, body insecurity kicked in early and really hard for me. Like, really hard. And it affected the way that I saw the world and affected the way that I presented myself or hid from the world many years before I understood that. Um, And many, many years before I was conscious of that fact. It's one of those things that I've talked to my mom about before, and I, I would like to, you know, go through those old photos because there is a lot about my childhood that I don't remember. You know, living with depression for a very long time, one of the things that it does is kind of wipes your brain's ability to make memories and to recall them in a very easy way. But I've found personally that when I do see photos of myself from a younger age, I am able to remember where I was that day or remember how I felt. You know, I, I would write, I, I got into writing the very early, so I would, you know, write stories, and I definitely, like, wrote skits and wrote sketch-like things, but it was never really my vision for me to be the star of those things. I feel like it was one of those things that I kind of immediately discounted and then never really revisited. Chris, I'm very interested to hear your on-camera history.
2: Well, starting at the age of two, (laughs) I was the (laughs) star of my own. No. In my mind, maybe. No, I actually didn't remember this until I read, somewhat recently, an old childhood journal from, like, elementary school, like, later elementary school, where I said that I wanted to be an actor, and I was like, I don't really remember thinking seriously about that, but of course at that age, most kids are not that well informed of what that actually means, and so I think what that meant was, like, to me, acting was part of storytelling, because, like, when you're a kid and you're playing, like, I was always writing the story and kind of directing the story and starring in the story, so to me, I think acting meant more, like, you were making things up on the spot, you know, more than what i really probably wanted to do was be a writer which is you know what i settled on later but i also like didn't really like seeing myself on camera i think it's really funny i wonder if like kids or anyone now has the same feeling that like we did Like, when you would see yourself on camera for, like, the first time or hear your own voice on on camera and be like, oh, my God, is that, like, what I look like or sound like? Because I I still have those moments sometimes, but, like, now people are growing up with cameras all the time and you can easily just record yourself and then, like, play it back. Like, you used to have to wait for film to be developed or, you know, you would only have videos of, like, these special occasions. Like, we had a camcorder, I think, is what the term for it was back then. (laughs) The ancient terminology. I know we had, like videos of like going to Disney World when I was 11. But I never then never liked watching those things because they were awkward. And by the time we would watch them, I was like one year older, I was like, Oh, like, I was such a baby when I was 11. So yeah, I've always had like a weird relationship where i like the act of being on camera and acting and hate actually like being seen on camera and watching myself on camera so it's clearly not a good (laughs) (laughs) career choice which um you know i never actually pursued but it is fun to perform on camera like there's something about it and i think it just goes with like the excitement of like being on set and making films and it's also fun to direct other people but I guess like ideally it would be fun to like also be in there too and be able to be like a part of it like while it's happening and then like later be able to edit it and like you know, which I guess is like is kinda what like being on YouTube is now. So I think Very yeah, so, yeah. If YouTube had been around like when I was like a teenager, I think I definitely would have I don't know, it might have been like weird some weird shit, but you know, I might have probably wanted to at least try it out. I don't know if I would have ever posted it, but I would have done it And then had, like, an alt channel for just myself.
4: (laughs) (laughs) That's great. And what you brought up, I think, is really key. And, I mean, obviously, it's not the subject of our episode, but, but on the question of realness. You know, like, what does it mean now for people who have grown up their whole lives knowing that cameras are everywhere, and when a camera comes out, you know, you're supposed to be on and performing and, you know, the most entertaining possible version of yourself. Cause I literally see toddlers, you know, turn on when the camera phone is on. Mm-hmm. And that's crazy.
2: Yeah. I mean, obviously, like when you had pictures taken of yourself anytime, like you smile for the camera, you're right. not, you say it, cheese. They're not always, like, candid. But I do feel like pictures used to be, like, more candid, even though they were harder to take and harder to develop. But I feel like now, yeah, there is more of a culture of being on camera that, like, maybe it's more, like, the posting of it, but, like, you, like, have the filters or you, like, you select which which pictures you're going to post. Like, it feels more, like, effort and thought goes into, like, curating a picture than before you would just be like, whatever, like, it's a family photo, we're all... Like, you wouldn't, like, spruce up your house or, like, think about what you're wearing or, like, the frame of the photo, really. Like, you just would take the picture.
3: Well, you can have more control over the pictures taken now because you can take, like, 50 in a row and keep one. and just delete the rest. You don't have to wait. You can take one and be like, oh, that angle's not good. And this goes for all ages. Like, I think kids growing up like this, knowing that, oh, I can pick this one out of the 50 I just took, and that's the one that represents me, not these other ones. Whereas if you, in the past, had to get it developed, what you got back was... These are the photos you took one picture with your friend and you're at a weird angle like that's that's supposed to be you. Yeah. And so it's I think easier in that way to feel insecure and be like, I'm not getting pictures taken of me. But now it's like, well, I can take it from this angle and I can put this filter on it and I can, you know, change myself in, in some way to be like, this is how I want you to see me.
2: But yeah, it ruins that moment cuz it is funny like when you develop a, a photo of your friend and like one of you looks funny and then that's mm-hmm. like that becomes like those kind of Photos are like your favorite photos, like often like with a like a funny photo with a friend or something. And like something that you just did like off the cuff and like didn't get to look at, like it doesn't imprint on your brain until you actually see the photo back. You're not like editing until you actually like get it back, and by then it's too late anyways.
4: And then not just that, but I'm thinking of the flip side, like Becky, you're talking about like taking fifty photos, and I'm thinking to myself, Well, for most people now, if you take 50 photos, the one person in the frame is going to be making the exact same face in all 50 frames. And it's a face that does not really even look like that person. Like, if you know them in real life, you take one look at their photo face, and you're like, that's not you. But that's clearly the face that you happened upon that, like you're saying, Becky, feels like the best presentation of yourself to other people. And the the calculated unreality of that... But simultaneously, the way that that's kind of become everyone's default for how we react to cameras is really interesting to me.
2: So let's start with a little history of reality. The concept of reality began at the dawn of time.
4: Oh boy. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) We are nothing if not comprehensive.
3: Can I fast forward a little bit?
4: (laughs) (laughs) Not when you're here.
3: (laughs) It's not a TiVo. It's not a TiVo? It's got to be, if anything, the VHS, like. (laughs) (laughs)
4: like, (laughs) Okay, chipmunks. This is the true story.
1: True story. Seven strangers (laughs) picked to live in a loft
0: and have their lives
1: taped to find out what happens what? when people stop being polite. Could you get the phone?
2: And start getting real. The real world. Reality television is generally thought of as a genre that arose in the 90s with the real world and became hugely popular and more widespread around the year 2000. But of course, there has always been some form of reality on television since television began. There's the news. I was about
3: to say, the news doesn't count.
2: <laughs> there are sports. There are nature documentaries, game shows, talk shows.
4: Literally none of those things are real. (laughs) All of those things are narrative and involve editing.
2: As does reality television. Yeah, all of those mixed scripted and unscripted elements, some planned events with some elements of spontaneity, but they're depicting something that we like recognize as reality in, in some form, more so than a sitcom or a TV drama. In 1948 came the debut of Candid Camera, which continued on and off through 2014.
4: Yeah, it's really funny. I had no idea Candid Camera started that long ago. Yeah.
2: How did they hide the camera? Wasn't it huge back then?
4: <laughs> <laughs> why is that elephant standing at the street corner? <laughs> <A> Trojan horse.
2: <laughs> it was. It actually started as candid microphone. I think it was, but it okay. was a radio show. Oh, and but so also
4: I, was it like a gigantic four foot long? It was just microphone? like, why is there
2: a boom mic following me around? <laughs> Well, the concept of following real people in their daily lives is a bit newer. The Up! series of televised documentaries was first aired in 1964. It interviewed seven seven seven-year-olds and continued to check in with them every seven years. And that is still ongoing.
3: I really wanted to see that. Yeah, I would like to watch that
2: that sometime. It's
4: amazing. It's very worth it. In
2: 1973, PBS aired a multi-part docuseries called The American Family about a family going through a divorce. Hmm. Cops aired on Fox in 1989, born out of a need for new TV content during the Writers Guild strike one year prior.
3: Interesting that Cops feels like the more modern day reality series.
2: Sadly, yes. (laughs)
3: Yeah. Hmm.
2: Whatcha gonna do? (laughs) Took you a minute, but you got it. (laughs) No, I got it. Bad boy. (laughs)
4: Wait till you looked at me to shake my head at you. Then in
2: 1991, the Dutch show number 28 featured seven strangers living in a house in Amsterdam for several months, interspersing documentary footage with confessionals by the cast, presumably as they stopped being polite and started getting
4: (laughs) real. (laughs) wow i had no idea
2: the show's creator eric latour has laid claim to creating this format although producers of mtv's real world have not acknowledged any influence claiming they were inspired by an american family
1: well i hated school because when i went to high school it was nothing it was a black high school that's it maybe no it was just a black high school That's it. <laughs> you know i can't even say <laughs> and maybe. It was just a black high school. So it, it was a different experience from going to college, meeting people from here and speaking with people. You know, it was different. But I had the same thing, because I was way out in the country, like what you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Hey, you went to an all-black high school. This was like, as white as could be, you know, one culture there. Right.
0: My town, in Ocean Township, it's like all middle class to like upper class families. Mm-hmm. But then you can you can you can go jog like two miles and you get into like Asbury Park mm-hmm. and that's like predominantly black. Like you, I played a lot of sports. I wanted to be a baseball player, yeah. I ran track in the whole nine, you know, and um mm-hmm. we were playing stickball on the block and um this kid, I never forget, he was like, um, yeah, Donnie, you and the nigga do this and then he was like <laughs> it was like routine and I was yeah. like, Yo, what's up, you know? <laughs>
2: The Real World was created in response to youth-oriented hits like Beverly Hills' 90210 and the popularity of daytime soap operas. Originally, the plan was to do a scripted soap with rock and roll attitude, but when creators Mary Alice Bunim and Jonathan Murray gave MTV the budget, the network said it was too expensive. They got their music videos for free. They couldn't spend $300,000 on a half hour of TV. So they wondered what would happen if they tried to do the show without writers or actors. One other major factor in reality TV rising around this time was the advent of shooting on video versus film, which was much cheaper and more portable. And another factor was the use of computers in the editing process, since editing this much stray footage would have been close to impossible if done by hand.
3: Yeah, I never thought about that.
2: Yeah. The first ever real... Mm, Real world is kind of a rural juror situation. (laughs) you can keep that in. I,
4: I just rewatched that episode, too. That makes me very happy. Thank you.
2: The first ever real-world cast <laughs> was six strangers chosen to live in a New York loft over Memorial Day weekend. Amy, Adam, Janelle, Peter, Tracy, and Dizzy were their names. It was edited into three episodes and never aired, but used as a pilot to show MTV that this concept could work.
3: I was about to say, like, a weekend? <laughs>
2: Wow. One cast member of this season zero, as it's kind of known, did go on to have success on MTV. That would be Tracy, who voiced the animated character Daria.
4: Good for her. Good for her. Yeah. Yeah.
2: The first actual cast was Seven Strangers living in the same loft in New York City. Cast member Kevin Powell has said he was paid $1,400 for season one of the show.
4: Holy shit.
3: I mean, what was that in 1994 or 1994? $1,500. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
4: not a whole lot more than that. Wow. What
3: was the debut year? 92. 92.
2: Not great. <laughs> Truly not great. For a whole season. Yeah.
3: I was honestly wondering this Like, how much money are these people getting? Season 17, what are they Probably
2: making? Probably still not much. I mean, they do get their Ruben board paid for for four you
3: months, know, three months.
2: I think it's longer in some of the later seasons. Oh, really? Yeah. But, I mean, still, like, the show makes millions, probably, so...
3: But, I mean, this is a whole talk about reality shows in general and how much you... you, The reason you don't hire actors is because your budget isn't high. That's true. Like, Joe Schmo, who wants to be on TV, is gonna say yes to a couple grand... Versus if you're an actor learning lines and have, like, you know, a reputation, you're not
4: gonna... Well, but I think that's part of why it's so structurally unfair and always has been. Because you're, you're... Yes, you are saving money in the sense that you're not literally hiring writers per writers, you're hiring producers who are actually the writers, and editors who are actually the writers, but you're relying on the characters, performers. The you're talents. relying on the talent, yes. You're relying on the talent to do a whole lot more than you would if you were just hiring actors. So, like, that's part of, to me, why the, the corporate rationale for not paying reality performers well, or not paying any other performers well on small sets and small productions is total bullshit because it's not like you're relying on those people to do less than you would other people you would hire.
3: I think you are hiring them to do less. <laughs> it's it's one thing to memorize a line and deliver it, you know, um, authentically.
2: It's more time. It might be less. It takes less talent and like pre-work. Like you don't have to do any pre-work to be on reality TV like you do. As an actor, you have to you'd study for years, you know, for the most part.
4: Yeah, and it's, and it's no less performing. If anything, again, you're placing on them the obligation to perform themselves.
3: In a way, we could go on for, like, <laughs>
4: this is a yeah. long discussion. Well, and they're also,
2: they're young, so they will take this kind of job. And you'll notice, like, especially in some of these early seasons, a lot of them are performers in some way. So they're doing it for exposure, like they're singers or actors or models. And then like a lot of reality shows have a big like cash prize, which is probably like their way of getting everyone to fight over the one prize instead of Mm -hmm. actually paying everyone like the prize money.
4: Or just paying everyone a salary.
2: The show debuted on May 21st, 1992. Reviews of the first season were mixed to negative and met with a fair amount of confusion. (laughs) On the positive end was Ken Tucker at Entertainment Weekly. He said, For 13 weeks, the real world will take the famous 1971 PBS series An American Family, in which a suburban clan lived its life for a year with cameras worrying, and cross it with the monkeys, turning these seven unknowns into personalities at least as vivid as your average MTV VJ. In theory, it all sounds pretty corny and contrived. In practice, the real world proves to be by far the most beguiling and involving piece of programming MTV has ever offered. What will the real world kids do when their insufferable MTV neighbor Polly Shore, the dunderhead of dude speak, drops by for a cup of sugar? Please you guys don't open the door.
3: Wait, was that a positive review or a negative review?
2: Well, it was a negative review of Polly Shore, but it right. was a positive review yeah, of okay. the show. Yeah.
4: He was multitasking at the time.
2: <laughs> it's just funny. It's like he didn't get like the concept that like they were filming in a real place and not like the MTV Lot or yeah. something where Polly Shore was obviously like we know more now, but Polly Shore never appeared on the real <laughs> like that kind of thing didn't really happen on that show. Like there were some sometimes like celebrities on, but it was a little bit more organic than that.
4: If you had told me though that MTV was keeping Paulie Shore in a vat and just releasing him to do various projects, I would have believed. Just a you. vapor
2: of Paulie Shore. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm gonna do a medium review. <laughs>
3: a medium review.
2: A medium review. From Newsweek, uh, John Lee Lind said, For all the show's shortcomings, though, the difference between the real world and the traditional network sitcom view of young adults is clear. In sitcoms, good-looking young adults talk about parents and morals and goals. In Verite, good-looking young adults talk about sitcoms. Welcome to the real world. And in negative review, I am, uh, I've condensed this because it was quite long, but there were a lot of zingers in here. <laughs> this is the Washington Post. It is not Rita Kempley. Oh,
4: the letdown. The letdown. She was just busy c- doing movies. That's true. That's true. She can't be everywhere. And
2: she would never be this biting. This is uh, by Tom Shales. He says, Ought to be young, cute, and stupid, and to have too much free time. Such is the lot facing the wayward wastrels of the real world. Something new and excruciating torture from the busy minds at MTV. What someone should say to the impressionable kids who will watch this is that we have enough poets, rappers, painters, singers, bands, models, and dancers. More than enough, in fact. You might want to think about getting a real job. Jesus. You might want to think about getting a real life. You might want to stop watching head-emptying drivel like the real world.
4: You might want to fucking kill yourself.
3: Oh, sorry. Somebody already wrote a song. I guess we don't need you to write any songs.
2: Oh, it goes on. (laughs) well i hated school says heather and you aren't surprised in the (laughs) recording studio she rehearses her latest rap ditty, a commentary on date rate poetically titled the system sucks oh stuff a sock in it here we have seven young people in desperate need of gainful employment they spend their time singing and rapping and hip-hopping they have a squirt gun fight at a department store they play scrabble they go to an art opening they got
3: hired to be show. They have a job!
2: (laughs) They listen to Andre's band, they have dinner party, they go roller skating, and they sit around asking one another, if we were on Gilligan's Island, who would you want to be? Does this group represent a generation? If so, help! And to think Dan Quayle is worried about the values endorsed by Murphy Brown.
1: Wow. Is this guy dead
2: yet? I feel like this makes it sound like that season of The Real World featured seven strangers picked together on Tom Shale's lawn.
4: (laughs) Like, the way he's talking about it makes me think of VH1's Bad Girls Club. There are reality TV shows and reality TV casts who absolutely line up with that sharpened analysis. This is not
2: that, though. He sounds 400 years old. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, that was the reaction to this at the time, was just, like, so much of it was just, like, normal people? What? Like, who would watch this? Like, he's reacting against the fact that they're... Speaking like kind of banal lines, but that's what real people do. It's not scripted, of course, they're not the most eloquent, you know like its It's just like this fundamental like misunderstanding of well, they reality. never had seen
3: anything like this before,
2: yeah. On MTV alone, the real world was the first nail in the coffin of it actually being a music-oriented channel, paving the way for MTV hmm. reality shows including Teen Mom, Jersey Shore, Cribs, Pimp My Ride, My Super Sweet 16, 16, and Pregnant, The Osbournes, Catfish, True Life, Punk to the Hills, Laguna Beach, How Far is Tattoo Far, <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. which I had not actually heard of that one, but I just thought it was funny enough to put in here.
4: That merited inclusion, thank you.
2: And of course, Road Rules. Beyond MTV, The Real World had a massive imprint on all of television. I would say perhaps the biggest influence of any TV series ever.
3: That's a pretty big statement. I I I could argue that. I would say like in Survivor it was probably for the reality competition show.
2: But I think Real World influenced Survivor. So like, True. if you say Survivor, it's like a like a family tree. Like The Real World's yeah. at the top. Yeah. A Swedish version of Survivor first aired in 97 with the first U.S. season in 2000. The Dutch version of Big Brother debuted in 1999, then was adapted for the U.S. also in 2000. Both are still on the air. And, of course, there are countless other reality series on the air, whole networks devoted to reality television, nothing but reality television. The Real World itself aired regularly until 2017, the longest-running program on MTV. And there are new Real World-related shows now on Paramount Plus in the form of Real World Homecoming, which reunites cast members from past seasons. So, with all that in mind, um, I would like to know what experience if any, did you have watching the real world as a child or teenager? And what do you remember of reality TV of these years, which were, for us, like, leading up to college, 2000, 2001?
4: I mean, for me, thinking of reality TV and thinking of it how I would have known it as a kid, it's MTV's real world, and, like, that's the sum total of it. I think until Survivor came along, because that was definitely big enough where, like, I didn't watch it personally, but it was an inescapable cultural juggernaut. Um, In a similar way, I think, to Real World. So you were the one who didn't watch it. Yeah, I think I was the one. I think season three of Real World San Francisco was the first season I ever saw episodes from. I don't remember how much of it I watched when it first aired, if any, or if I only caught it in rebroadcasts. Thinking about this and watching these episodes, I seem to remember MTV would do long programming blocks where they would rebroadcast a whole season at a time. Um, Oh,
2: yeah. Marathons, yeah. Yeah,
4: like marathons of them. And I'm betting that's where I caught season three. And then season nine in New Orleans was the first season I know that I saw in its entirety from the first time it aired.
2: Just by, like, going outside and, like, (laughs) watching them?
4: Literally, just through sheer osmosis. As I've talked about before, I grew up in New Orleans, and I was a sophomore in high school in Uptown New Orleans in the very same neighborhood, literally a few blocks away from the real-world house. I remember the house itself... Being kind of remodeled and renovated. I remember filming happening there. And I especially remember how they stripped the house down bare and really left it abandoned and very shoddy for many years afterward. And it became an eyesore. And it was a real disappointment to me because I loved that season of Real World, for reasons we'll go into when we talk about it later. But it was very, very soon after they finished filming that they just literally kind of just abandoned that house there. And it's nowhere, it's not in that kind of condition at all anymore. It's it's since been, you know, totally redone and it has a purpose now. But I watched probably one or two more full seasons of Real World after that, and then at least a season or two maybe of Road Rules. But I was never a very intense fan, and I didn't really think much about it after those few seasons.
3: I cannot remember if I watched this growing up. It was something my sister definitely watched. I think I remember even helping her film her audition tape for either Real World or Road Ooh, Rules.
4: I oh, wanna <laughs> oh, I want to see it. Oh, I want to see it please.
3: <laughs> oh, I have no I, I mean she may have recorded it and then sent it in, you know. It's not like we could
4: She didn't dub a copy? Come on. <laughs> I
3: I don't know, but I remember she Come on, Or sent her tape in. When we said we were going to do this, I remembered Puck and Pedro. Like, that's what I remembered about the real world. I didn't know if that was season one or two or whatever.
2: The Chippendale of their time.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so I don't remember if I watched it. May- maybe I watched it over my sister's shoulder, maybe through osmosis with pop culture. I think there was a season that sounds familiar to me. I can't remember which one it is, though. So, like, whatever memories I have of this are just so faded. Um, And I never watched reality TV growing up besides, like, game shows. Was not interested because I remember when I was 17 and it was the Survivor finale when I was at film camp at Northwestern and everyone had gathered to watch the finale of of Survivor and I hadn't seen one episode and I watched it with them. And I remember it being good TV, even for somebody who had not watched the season. Sure, Um, absolutely. and And I even have, like strong memories of what that episode was but i never was into it and then i would say i was even anti-reality tv i thought it was stupid and it was in college the third season of american idol i wanted to watch it because i heard it was funny like to make fun of the bad singers and then i got really invested (laughs) i got really invested in season three of american idol and then it was like Uh, Up until, like, Nicki Minaj and Mariah Carey were on, I watched it every season. (laughs) So I think, like, slowly in my life, reality TV came in. Like, now I will, like, happily be like, oh, I watch Queer Eye, and I watch the Great British Baking Show, and I watch Making It. And there are so many reality shows and competition shows that I think that it would be stupid of you to say, I hate reality shows. Like, there's so many different ones that like I think you're denying yourself some good TV. It doesn't mean you have to watch the Bad Girls Club, which is like what my brain went to. Oh hold on now.
4: I <laughs> do not do not disparage Bad Girls Club <laughs> yeah, in this know. household. I unironically fucking love okay, that show. Okay, I
3: truly have it was, I don't know. <laughs> it, no, it's
4: hilarious because that was actually one of the first reality shows I watched that I was so entertained by okay. that, that i was like this is trash and i feel like i'm trash for watching it <laughs> but i love this <laughs> well i mean
3: like the kardashians or the right. hills or right you know there's shows like that and i really don't want to judge people that watch that because they get something out of it even if it's like turning their brain off but there's there's a lot of great shows i would recommend like queer eye like the current queer eye netflix like anyone um, so, it really just yeah. depends on what your thing is, but I think it's funny that I just, like, have this negative opinion <laughs> of reality shows for so long, but it's, it's, I'm a hypocrite, because I watch, I certainly watch some.
4: Well, and I, th- I think we all are hypocrites, you know, a- and there's a part of me that still, you know, I-, I still have that, that kind of, like, spiritual, a bit of spiritual revulsion, um at this you know it's not just one genre of tv anymore cuz like you're saying it's like there are reality docuseries. series like mm-hmm. i don't consider queer eye i don't consider the netflix version of queer eye to be like reality television but it is I consider That's that the to genre. be like well i consider that to be like a documentary series and like great british bake off and nailed it are like they're reality competition shows, but it's just, like, it's competition shows, you know? And, like, game shows existed for decades and decades before that, and, I don't know, there's something to me that feels a bit more honest about that than something like Keeping Up with the Kardashians, where it's so clear that every single aspect of it is quite literally scripted, mm-hmm. but they just don't pay writers. Um and yeah, like it, I literally had forgotten about like the hills and and Spencer and Heidi and like all yeah. of those things. And like that I think is fertile ground and worthwhile ground for a kind of cultural revulsion. <laughs> but yeah, at the same time, it's it like you, Becky, it's like I, I very much held a totalizing hatred of all reality TV, but then I was like, no, actually, there are some of these series that I really enjoy. I hate reality (laughs) TV.
3: You hate all TV. You don't like TV at all. Chris hates
4: reality television nearly
2: as much as he hates reality. So I'll start with my history before I get into my soapbox. (laughs)
4: Your current hatred. Yeah.
2: I started watching The Real World at the same time I got into TRL, like the two years that I became a semi normal teenager. It only lasted that long.
4: I watched a bit of TRL during that time too.
2: Yeah, I mean, I feel like you watch the real world right before you go into the real world, and then you have no interest in watching the real world again.
4: (laughs) perfectly put.
2: And so the first season I watched was season 8 in Hawaii, which was following season 7 in Seattle. And so I I know I had been aware of the Seattle season partially because I listened to the radio station 107.7 The End.
3: Enough of the references. Chris. <laughs> no, they're
4: never going to they're never
2: going to end.
3: They're never going <laughs> to <gonna> pay you.
2: <laughs> Who do you think has been sponsoring this all along?
4: Wait, we've been getting sponsored? Oh no, no.
2: So I think I probably saw a couple of episodes of that At some point, like, just the general interest of, like, oh, how do they represent, like, the city that I'm from? It was just the right time for me to be watching cool 20-somethings, you know, doing mildly scandalous things. You know, you're, like, 17, 18, but you're still living at home at that point, so it's like you're experiencing what you, I guess, imagine, like, real life will be, like, in a few years, or could be at least. So I watched Hawaii and New Orleans. Like, you guys, like, it didn't imprint on me very much... I mean, I, going back now, I certainly remember most of these people, but, like, if you had asked me a month ago before I started watching these episodes again, I don't think I could have told you any names, maybe one or two people's names from episodes I saw or, like, would have been able to tell you what they look like or anything. Like, it really took, like, revisiting all of this for it to come back. And I would watch it, and I was interested, but then it was over, and I never thought about it until it came back on, you know? Like, I was talking to friends about Dawson's Creek and Ally McBeal. Like, I was excited for that. I was invested in those people. I was not invested in real people. But I did have the sense that, like, it was cool to watch the real world, even though, like, I don't actually remember anyone talking about it. Like, I don't think anyone was ever like, did you see yesterday's episode? But I always felt like, if someone did ask me, I could be like, yes, am I in call? all the way and you know like <laughs> i could have joined that conversation i did watch the first season of survivor like pretty much everyone in the country i think it was a huge ratings hit and it felt like a real phenomenon at the time like it was it's one of those moments that you can recognize like culture changing every like magazine was talking about this because it, it just felt so new like in a way that i don't think the real world did because it felt a little more niche and it was an mtv show this was like a network show and it was like something that Everyone was watching. And I only watched it, like, for that reason. It was, like, a good show to watch with your family, because, like, the real world was a little too, like sexy and, you know, alternative for, like, a family viewing, but Survivor was, like, perfect family viewing. So, I remember being, I guess, mildly invested in that at the time. It's like Becky said, is like, it's good TV even if you, as much as I don't watch reality shows, I am as susceptible as anyone else to, like, when it's on, you get really invested in these petty dramas and you start picking sides and wanting certain people to succeed and other people to fail, whether it's a competition or not. And so that definitely is still, like, a thing I experience, even though I don't seek that out i've very briefly like gone in and watched like one season of big brother or there was a model reality show on bravo that i watched oh, for I a season or next two. top
4: model or project runway
2: no neither of those no that's why i referred to it oh. obscurely because i don't <laughs> okay. remember what it's called but it was like just about becoming a model
4: oh okay mm-hmm.
2: make me a model that's what it was called
4: <laughs> <laughs> creative title
2: And then Survivor had a season two and every other season. And then, like, I started to realize, like, oh, this is not a once in a lifetime event. This is, like, a thing that's going to just, like, keep happening the same way in various, like, incarnations forever. And I really lost interest. And there was a time, I think, in the early 2000s where reality TV felt, like, such a threat. And I think that's why we all have a kind of a negative, knee jerk reaction to reality TV is that it felt like reality TV was coming for scripted TV and that, like, it might eventually, like, just replace it. And now that seems a little silly because it's, like, like, well, we just have both kinds of shows and there's, you know, roughly an equal amount of both kinds of shows. And they're
4: nearly all awful.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So it just like kind of subsumed television for at least a few years. And it seemed like...
3: I mean, the reason for that is because the budgets were much lower than scripted and there were hits. Not every single one was a hit, but enough of a hits that production companies and networks were like, let's spend all of our Money, (laughs) half the amount we would spend on a new sitcom, let's spend it on a reality show that might be a big hit for us.
4: Well, and it was really interesting. Chris talked about how cops came in the wake of a writer's strike. And we, in our younger adulthood, (laughs) there was another writer's strike in 2008. And that was also very much a pivot point where a lot of production companies and TV networks moved toward, quote unquote, unscripted programming.
3: Because that's what they could film during the writer's strike, technically, because it wasn't writers, even though writers certainly do work on those shows, right? this is is a whole topic of like...
4: (laughs) But again, it it just goes to me, to, to Chris, what you were talking about is kind of, there was a perception of a kind of threat to all forms of scripted storytelling TV, and I don't think that was a misplaced anxiety, really.
2: Yeah, and watching the real world again, I realized why this did appeal to me more. Is like so much of reality TV became contrived situations, such as competing for money, or you have to do this challenge. Even Big Brother, like, is kind of a real real world show, but then they have challenges in there and like have a much more artificial construct. It's
3: the same of Survivor. It's a real world yeah, show. Yeah,
2: exactly. So it's just like i am interested in reality for its reality which is almost nowhere to be found in most of what we call reality and you know as people who've worked in entertainment like everyone to some extent knows that reality tv is not real and is manipulated but like i think like if you know production and know how things are edited you see it even more for me it just becomes really hard to watch these shows especially the ones that are trying to represent like real conversations like the kardashians is like trying to pass it off as if this this is kind of a candid conversation and you just like see the seams and and how like this has been set up yeah it just it becomes really hard for me to watch and just like they usually have bad like music or sound effects like cartoon like boings happening and it's just like it's badly produced a lot of the time not every show but a lot of them are or they just kind of feel like very lowest common denominator so as we're gonna start talking about this show is like i appreciated it for pretty much i mean there's obviously some producer influence like not everything is probably as real as it might look but i think in general you're still seeing real people going about their daily lives like they leave the house they go to work they have their boyfriend or their mom come visit there are real things happening and you're still seeing basically real people interacting and that is not actually what a lot of reality tv is What was it like for you guys watching this show? Like, how did you respond to it?
3: It was very interesting. My husband watched a little over my shoulder and he's never seen a second of this show. he he thought it was something completely different honestly and he's like i can't believe it's just like reality shows today they're just a bunch of normies (laughs) like just talking about shit and i was like yeah but it pioneered that (laughs) it was interesting watching it because sometimes i was into it sometimes not i think the the way that we watched it it was hard to get invested because we only watched a few episodes per season and i think one of the things that you kind of need in this kind of show is to watch it from the beginning and then you have your favorites and you're invested in their drama so that was a little hard to get into, just the way we did this podcast. But I found it so fascinating. Two things. How much this format has not changed too much in 30 years. What a brilliant format Buna Murray, like, put together. It's just so classic. It's like it's like aristotle or like or you know greek myth where you're just like these are the standard tropes
4: which vj was aristotle again (laughs) uh i'm sorry fact check i think it was actually plato who invented the reality tv ideal
3: you know what i mean like it's just so classic and it's like you live in a house you there's drama there's
4: the fucking confessional (laughs) booth
3: confessionals
2: not could, just the idea of confessionals, but the way that they, like, comment back space. on, like, what you just saw, and they're, yeah. like, you can tell that they're talking, because, like, uh, sometimes things happen in the moment, and yet they're talking as if they haven't happened yet, yeah. or they're happening right then, when you know, as someone who, like, knows how time and editing work, <laughs> that, like, it's speaking not possible for them to be speaking in that moment, like, they had to go back, and they're pretending that they're thinking ahead, you know, it's it's very strange.
3: I found that fascinating. Things have gotten a little bit more crisper. Like, I thought it was interesting how, like, the editing wasn't all the way there. Like, how to make a cohesive episode that feels like there's an arc in the episode. Like, I think that took a few seasons before Mm -hmm. the show could develop that more. But the ideas of reality television are there in this show and they're still here present day and the other thing that was fascinating was that a lot of the discussions and the opinions of the people in the show like not much has changed (laughs) like the conservative views the the liberal views like it's just it made me sad (laughs) that you could probably still find the same conversations happening um in like real world season 20 that you did in season one and that made me sad just because decades have gone by and we're still having the same fucking debates about gay marriage or or you know aids or misogyny or or anything homosexuality like things like that and you wish that it was a little bit better and i I haven't watched any real world since these episodes you know so i don't know but it just feels like this is a conversation they'd probably be having today i guess that was fascinating to see (laughs) from a historical viewpoint but yeah it was it was interesting as a time capsule it's not something i think that i would put on and be like i gotta watch the full season now of of san francisco or or whatever but just looking at it from a historical perspective it was really interesting to watch
0: (laughs) (laughs) go heather go heather go heather go (laughs) heather what
1: is that? The beeper. Wow. Do you sell drugs? Why do you have a beeper? <laughs> no, I haven't had a chance to speak with Julie at all, and I'm really once she said the bit about the drug deal, I, I really want to talk to her. I, I really want to know what she thinks. Yeah, okay, so everybody's gonna be against mistaken. me because I'm the only southerner.
0: I, I guess I would take offense to that too, but I don't think she was serious. The beeper. I knew it. <laughs> I just was hoping it wasn't going to be a series of comments, you know, like, Kevin, do you play basketball?
1: I don't consider myself racist in any way. I don't even know how it ended up like that.
4: Yeah, I mean, Becky, I I think you put it perfectly. I mean, those were very much the things that leapt out to me, too, especially the kind of American regression and reversion on display. Yeah, I mean, if anything, I think it's a little more advanced that people who disagree with each other that much would even talk to each other anymore, Mm -hmm. rather than having, like, anonymous trolling fights on, on the internet. To kind of hash those things out. It was interesting to me that they had them just, you know, tackle topics head on. I could literally just repeat everything you said, but like one of the other things I think that really stood out to me a lot rewatching the episodes I did was the degree to which all of the talent were very self conscious of the camera and knew that they were there to perform themselves and be a version of themselves. It was really interesting to watch how that evolved over the seasons. How I think like a lot of the people who came in later seasons were already more
3: seasoned camera-savvy?
4: Yeah, very much camera-savvy. Also, very savvy of the narratives that could be made out of what they were going through. Like, we'll talk about, like, Melissa, who's in the New Orleans season in season nine, because she stood out even when I was literally just watching it as a high school sophomore. I was like, she is just really aware of not just, you know, the fact that there are cameras there and that she's on TV. She's also keenly aware and sensitive to the narratives that other people in the house have about her and to how people in, you know, the broader television viewing audience might see her and might judge her. And it made me feel a lot of sympathy for all of the people who do this because I'm sure you go in with whatever expectations you have of exposure, of finding an audience for your own whatever your creative outlets are. But it's a really fucking difficult thing to be subjected to and to subject yourself to, especially in terms of, you know, like what comes after and the way that people do see you and judge you when you're, you know, out in the world now as an ex-Real World contestant trying to make your music career, your acting career, whatever it is you went in there wanting to do. It was really fascinating watching these episodes again. There were a lot of things that I remembered, a lot more characters from seasons that i totally forgotten I'd seen any of. And I also ended up re-watching most of season nine of New Orleans, and I'm really glad that I did, because, like you've both mentioned, watching a larger number of these episodes of a particular season really did re-involve me emotionally in these people's lives. And again, that was a thing that I, you know, was open to, but didn't really expect going in.
2: Yeah, I think it depends on the cast a little bit, like...
4: Oh, definitely. Because some of the
2: casts I definitely got more pulled in, and sometimes... I was just like, all right, I'm good. Like, after one episode or something, because I actually sampled a few extra seasons. It is interesting to watch their evolution from being in the first season really unsure about what this show is and if people will even watch it, because there was no framework for like what this show would even look like to them. Like, they didn't know how it would be edited. They didn't know what the critical response would be. Every other season after this had some sense of what the show would look like and whatever. But at first, like, they don't even seem sure that, like, we're being taped and we're just acting normal. Like, it's so crazy. So it's really... It is really fun to watch that evolve over these years. And also, my feeling of kinship with these people, like, watching season one is, like, these people are very different from me. Like, the world is very different because I was... like. Like eight years old at this time, so like, mm-hmm. and not in New York City, so like, <laughs> this is not my experience of 1992 in, yeah.
3: in any way. I felt that too.
2: So I guess we might as well start talking about that first season, New York. There were later New York seasons as well. The cast was Julie, a conservative from the South, whose father wants her to be a computer operator, whatever that is.
4: I, I'm going to say more about her in a bit. <laughs>
2: Becky, uh, who goes to NYU film school and is
4: also a singer. Yeah. It's not <laughs> you.
3: Singer, filmmaker from New York, Becky.
4: Hashtag not my Becky. Also a racist, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's really not dwell on the, the, the alikeness here. <laughs>
2: there is Kevin, a writer and poet and activist. Norman, the first LGBTQ cast member. A painter with a dog named Gouda. <laughs> there was Heather, a rapper who wants to uh, grab someone's booty, a basketball player. I forget which one. Larry Johnson. Okay. There is Andre, a alternative musician with long 90s rocker hair. Oh
3: my God, his luxurious locks. Yes. Yeah.
2: And there is Eric, a model. <laughs> <laughs> that is his personality and job. Well, my first roommate walked in and her name
0: was Becky. Hi. All I got to say is that you're a queen, I'm a king, and this is... I can't just just walk around.
1: This is where we live.
0: My next roommate was Kevin. (laughs) I almost fainted. I was like, my God, what is this fantasy island? This loft is um, incredible. I've never seen anything like it. Love and sex. Yeah, (laughs) Norman. This is totally (laughs) insane.
1: I thought they said no pets.
0: Heather is a rapper. Right. I'm
1: Heather. Too. Hi. Hi, Heather. I'm just running from <laughs> the door.
0: <laughs> Andre. The door opened and I saw five other people. Nothing like me or most of the people that I hang out with. Who doesn't smoke?
3: My number one thing when I started, because I started season one, they looked so not camera ready. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's also the 90s, so they had the fuzzy hair, but it was shocking because if you had cut from season one to like season whatever the latest season is, I'm sure that those people look Instagram ready with like perfect makeup and their hair done both for confessionals and just, like, waking up in the morning, making sure you're going to be filmed that day. Oh, yeah,
4: no, they've got each of their looks down (laughs) starting a few seasons in. Yeah, so
3: that was just very interesting because these people just, like, it. it, it, they didn't have the cameras on them all the time. They didn't understand what it meant to be on camera or how you not should present yourself, but, like, just over time, people have been more camera savvy.
2: Yeah, and, I mean, I think a couple of them were more, like, cast members that you would see later. Like, Eric, the model, obviously, is more used to... and I think is playing to the camera a lot more. Oh, definitely. Um And then there's, like, someone like Julie, who I feel like is not necessarily playing to the camera, but she's just a naturally charismatic person. Like Like, she kind of, like... Whenever she's on, like, the show just kind of focuses on her naturally Mm -hmm. because she's the most conservative, so she's the most, like, reacting to things. But she's just one of those people that's, like, that's great casting for this first season. And then there's other times, like, other ones where you're like, "Mm," like, I don't know if they would have been cast in a later season because they're just, like, kind of average people who don't stand out a whole lot. And the show definitely, like, gravitates toward, like, three or four personalities and other people kind of fade into the
4: background. That's every
3: season, though.
4: That's every season, but also, it was like, I felt like Norman was probably the most uninteresting person, even though he's, like, a Star Trek fanatic, which I should love, and he's a gay guy who was a dog, which I should also love. (laughs) Um, I was kind of surprised that I could be that bored by a relatively pioneering... (laughs) gay figure on on national television. Well, but he also like
2: didn't lead with that in any way and this was like the season that it doesn't feel like oh they cast they've got their gay. Like it took a while I think for him to even say that cuz like the show starts a little slower than it does That's usually true. and they're like kind of like one by one like introducing them in their hometowns and stuff, which they do on like American Idol a lot, but they don't really do on The Real World very much like a few seasons later. I just don't think he was cast for that reason, and I kind of found it refreshing that it just wasn't, oh, here's the gay. Like, it came up organically, and it wasn't as big of a deal as it is even in later seasons. Certain cast members coming out is, like, a big deal, and this one, no one cared. No one really had much to say about it.
4: Yeah. I think your point is a key one in that there are, like, two or three or four characters where you know that the producers knew that they had something on their hands, at least in the sense of having found these people. And Julie is absolutely the key one in season one. Um, And, And Kevin
2: is, like, on the other end and, of the and spectrum. And Kevin is, is the
4: the kind of foil to her. Yeah. And Kevin Powell is a writer. He has written, like, 14 books. He was a co-founder, I think, of Vibe Magazine? Oh. Yeah. Like, he is a, He's a big huge, gift. big deal now. And so it was fascinating watching him here. One of my biggest notes for this whole episode is one of the biggest through lines of this entire series is depicting white people's total obliviousness to the existence of racism, and also (laughs) to the existence of Black people, and just, like, the idea of Blackness and how foreign that was to a lot of white people of many generations. Still very much the case now. Maybe, you know, that bubble of ignorance has been punctured in certain ways. But truly, I was positively surprised by Kevin and by the way that he reacts to, you know, his roommate's ignorance. But I definitely, like, wanted to spend a bit more time also talking about Julie, because her name is literally Julie Gentry. (laughs) Like, gentry, you know, like, that's such a loaded term in and of itself. She is the first character introduced in the first episode of this show. She's from Birmingham, Alabama, and in the middle of her introducing herself, they cut in, like, over with her narrating stock footage of a Confederate flag. Yeah, And so that, I just had to write that down because it made so clear and unsubtle the degree to which the producers of the show were just very willfully and carefully shaping the narrative for these human beings and trying to cue how we're supposed to feel about them going in and how we're supposed to see them as characters. Even though they are real people performing a version of themselves, they're very much characters and there is active not just curation but active storytelling going on the whole time i'm saying at
0: some point in my life i recognize that a large part of my history was denied from me Mm, your history is my history i agree we just don't realize it you know
1: Who doesn't realize that? I just have things against ignorant people in general, and I mean, I can try as much as I can to try to deal with you and see you for what you are, but ignorance is ignorance, stupidity is stupidity, and that's it, black, white, green, purple, blue, whatever. You know, everybody's really smart. They're all very smart. And they have, you know, really solid opinions on about everything you can think of. So I felt, you know, just kind of wondering if I was gonna be just the big screw
2: up of the lot, yeah, but that also, like, to me, just signaled how ignorant the MTV audience, aka America at the time, would have been to seeing a Confederate flag and not thinking, "Oh, this is making a racist." or, like, this is making a comment about, like, this This is a loaded image with race. Like, it was such an image of Southern pride, I feel like, at this time that was kind of accepted as that and not challenged nearly as much
4: as it is now. Oh,
3: yeah, I totally think the vast majority of people see that and they think Southern pride they don't think racism back in 1992.
4: As the only person in this room who actually lived in the South, I would disagree with that. Um, well,
3: but you're from the South. I, not everybody's from the South.
4: But I'm just saying, like, in a lot of the South, a lot of people who would have watched that first season would recoil in horror. It's not as if the Confederate flag was some super widely accepted thing. There were a lot of people who understood exactly what that flag stood for,
2: but there were—I think there were a lot of people who didn't, and that's what I'm saying is like this could be put in the show, and most people probably didn't think about it in that context.
4: Sure, in like America more broadly, I feel like people would. Yeah, lack that's that. what
2: I'm saying is yeah. just like in general the audience. Yeah, like yeah, well, I, I think
3: also I-, I liked Julie from, What I saw in these episodes, because she was open to the experience of going to New York and learning about cultures. And she was 19 and young, but like very much like wanting to learn and and listen. And so I and, and she was the one that like her dad was not like that. And she was the one being like, Dad, you don't you don't get me you don't get young people. Mm-hmm. you know so I felt like she wanted to expand her horizons and so as far as like a conservative figure on this show I liked her because it felt like she wanted to learn more and and get out of her hometown and, and see oh, the yeah. world
4: yeah I totally agree I think that's part of why the episodes I watched worked so well for me it's because she's not like a cartoon villain
3: mm-hmm.
2: yeah like the big story of this season in terms of controversy was Kevin clashing with both Julie particularly in one or two episodes and Becky Particularly in one episode, like they got into an exchange that I think was like heated, but not maybe as crazy as it. Like, if you say that they had like a heated conversation about race, like, I thought it would be worse than it was. Like, they were still pretty you called the her most- a racist. <laughs> He called her a racist. He called her a bitch.
3: Oh, the word bitch was said a lot. (laughs) Especially in, yes,
2: a later season. But yeah, like, it's interesting to hear that he is saying things that a lot of people are only hearing Black people say recently with the recent conversation. Like, now people are kind of waking up to some of these ideas and being like, oh, now I get what you're saying about white privilege and things like that. In 92, he's saying the same things that have been said in recent years, but white people are not hearing them the same way and are, are not Like the, at least these specific people are not hearing it and reacting to it. Like Julie says, I think you're a racist against white people, which has been a common, you know, Mm -hmm. rebuttal when black people comment about white people is like, oh, well, isn't that just racist? So it's a good time capsule, I think, of someone who is still kind of open minded and trying and not, she's not a total bigot, but she's just like not quite getting what this experience is for him.
1: This land that we live on, the physical land, is going Ooh, to be here. That
0: was stolen from the Indians. We'll be here.
1: Well, chip on your shoulder or not, I mean, you know, I Should think... What mean, chip on no, your shoulder? No, I just mean like, I think there's a lot of opportunity in this country. Opportunity
0: for what? Opportunity? They look, took one look at me and they were like, no, we can't hire him. You know what I'm saying? Why not, Becky? The color of my skin. That's an opportunity, Becky. Well, that's that's an opportunity. a opportunity. good speech, Kevin, and I agree that, with you. Wait a minute, a good speech?
1: Well,
0: that's I'm sure
3: that that happened to you. And there's a reality, because I'm female, I don't get a lot of crap <sighs> Becky, but You know
0: what, Becky? And I think wait a minute, you, a you want a still. But you want another reality? If what, you look at the statistics, reality? white women benefit for the, benefited from the civil rights movement more than black people. Look it up.
1: Then I'm the lucky one.
4: You are. The kind of big speech I think that you're talking about is in episode seven. It's shocking that it wasn't, like, pre-written beforehand. Like, Kevin is so detailed and so methodical as to how he lays out exactly where he's, like, disagreeing um, with Becky. Who, I want to be honest, I I think the Becky in this season is being a total fucking racist. I think Julie is, too, but in a much less virulent way than Becky was. But I find it very interesting because it's like what Kevin is talking about is not just, like, you know, you're being racist against me. Like, he talks about, like, how the 80s made America into an individualistic and selfish society where everyone's just looking out for their own best interests. And it's like, that is a kind of political critique that is more widely understood now, but it's, in some ways, it feels even more taboo to talk about. And really, one of the other through lines, aside from white people being oblivious to their racism, is white women claiming that they They've been attacked by Black men and immediately getting absolutely everyone in their vicinity completely on their side and believing their side of the story, whatever their story is. And only later do people actually take some time and slow down and actually ask the other person who was involved in a situation what happened. And it's done. It's kind of surprising because it is very much a show that's not found its footing yet, but I thought it was very well done how they structured laying out that disagreement, laying out How it got misinterpreted by Becky, laying out how Kevin literally felt about every step of that along the way and how Kevin saw it as it was happening. And I felt like that was a representation of not just an instance of, you know, like racial discord or whatever, but it very fully and fairly captured how everyone involved felt about that.
2: Yeah, Kevin is very articulate and clearly has, like, thought through a lot of these issues and is a, like, deep thinker about politics and social issues in a way that I don't think any other cast member ever again is quite as much of a, like, voice speaking outside of his experience. There's other conversations about race and other issues, but they're usually coming from more personal, emotional places, and his is much more reasoned as if he's almost, like, writing an essay about this. (laughs) like live in front of you so that makes a very interesting season here but it doesn't really make the show because he's on such a different plane as everyone else it's more of like how can he affect these other people versus like how is he Mm -hmm. also like affected by these people like he's not really affected by them he's kind of like uh like talking to them instead of like with them if that makes sense. It
3: seems like he's put in the house like the gay guy is put in the house because it's like it's a black guy, it's a gay guy. How are these white people gonna deal with a yeah. white with a with a gay guy and a black guy in the house? Yeah, that's what it felt like.
4: And I feel like one of the things that the roommates do to kind of I think they're hoping to like ingratiate him more into their group and bring him more into it is that they play a prank on Kevin over the course of two episodes. They literally and they explain it on camera like they're doing it to like get back at him for staying away from the apartment so much. It's
2: weird. It's so
4: weird. I was very confused because it was weird. So like, and I wanted to like pause on that and just talk about pranks because. A, there are a lot of prank phone calls in this, and those don't really exist anymore, and that was just funny to me to, like, remember back that that was a thing.
2: That a 19-year-old, and I think Heather is, like, <laughs> 21, 22, would, like, just dial up random numbers. and Legal be like,
4: adults. They're legally cool. adults here, yeah. let's be clear.
2: Um, I mean, I did that when I was 11, maybe once, but...
4: (laughs) But then, like, the prank that they pull on him is that they write down all these kooky personalities and draw them out of a hat or a bottle or something, and they all just completely change all of their personalities the next time that Kevin comes back. And it totally, like, legitimately and understandably freaks him out. Literally, it's gaslighting.
2: It's yeah, like, Julie is
4: like a, a slut. Yeah, quote, Julie's unquote. a slut
2: because she's like the conservative one. So all of a sudden, I think she says she lost her virginity and is like acting slutty. Eric, the straight, like hunky model, pretends to be gay and is like pretending that he's interested in one of the other male housemates. Yeah, it's very odd. And again, something that doesn't really happen in later seasons.
3: Look, no pranks are good. <laughs>
4: yeah, all, that's all, kind all of where
2: it landed bad. on it. I, was I like, it was you know what, weird that he didn't understand that it was... A prank Because it was just so wild
3: Right Also that The whole the whole thing confused me Yeah I was like this is
2: weird
0: Julie Julie like Topped it all off We're sitting here at dinner Julie comes down Her hair was all curled She had red lipstick on I mean She was straight out of Jersey City It was just a classic I can't believe this It's like abrupt no, it's not abrupt It's been happening for a long time You just Don't see it See what? Like
1: Change. I mean, the I've been moms. doing this.
0: Really? You know that guy Johnson I'm not with. I'm sure he had some stories to tell his friends, huh? What'd you do with him?
2: It was just, it felt like it was, like, trying to be a different show. Like, I feel like that was a producer note. They were like, wouldn't it be funny if you did this? And yeah. then it just, and then they're like, nope, that wasn't great. Like, we won't, we won't do that again.
4: Part of what was interesting about this season was that this was literally taking place during the LA riots. And so it's so rewatching it. It's so understandable why Kevin is as angry as he is. And it's astonishing that he is as composed on this show as he was.
2: It's interesting that, like, that didn't have the effect on the white cast members as, like, the George Floyd thing. It's like, that really woke up a lot of white people a couple years ago to being like, oh, now I understand more what people are saying. Like, I understand more of these issues. But at this time, the riots was like, whoa, Black people in L.A. are crazy. Like, (laughs) that was their reaction. Yeah, Yeah, like, they didn't think, like, oh, maybe there's an issue here that I have something to do with and I should think about my own comments or behavior. I did watch one episode of The Homecoming for this season. <laughs> really?
4: really? interesting.
2: Which was also about the racial conflict between Kevin and Julie, and especially Becky, because Were Julie... Were they all back? Mm-hmm. Oh.
4: And they, like... We didn't give too much detail earlier, but for the homecoming series, they all do live in one place again for
2: a shorter time. It's like for a, like for a few weeks. Yeah, but yeah, um, I think one of them is like coming in remotely for for some reason. I I just like popped in like the third episode or something, so I I don't have all the context. But Becky has not aged well in terms of her progressive. <laughs> or not progressive ideas mm. and it's literally the same conversation playing out again and so like it's funny that we're like saying like oh julie seemed more open-minded and yep it's just funny like y- you have the answers like when you watch this thing like yeah. it's like yes julie did realize that she has like a ways to go and you know is e- has educated her kids more like when obama came to birmingham she took her kids there to you know learn about what was going on and becky is like i have A house in France and is like not understanding (laughs) like white privilege at all. So, okay,
4: and it's It's still very
2: defensive. Yeah, so
4: I'm kind of interested, I'm kind of intrigued to like check out those episodes, even as little of the season as I saw. Because again, it's like with, and I really urge anyone out there to watch the 7 Up series because it is so fascinating to like watch the passage of time and how it. Does or does not change people.
2: Mm-hmm. Speaking of which, uh, <laughs> we'll move on to season two, which was called Real World California at the time, and <laughs> later called Los Angeles as they did more seasons in like San Francisco, San Diego, yeah, you've and couldn't be just more specific. couldn't just call it California. This season aired in 1993. Some of the cast members included John, a country boy from Kentucky,
3: with the worst mullet I've
2: ever seen. Uh-huh. Oh,
4: that was there was. Way too much representation of the mullet American (laughs) community in this season.
2: (laughs) There was also Tammy, an AIDS clinic worker, and Aaron, a conservative surfer and CPA. (laughs) This season, atypically for the show, started with a couple of the cast members on a road trip from Nashville to L.A., and they picked up John in Kentucky and, like, stayed at his parents' house for a night. And, like, they clearly, like, didn't know exactly what they were doing, because this season started with, like, the cast members from season one coming back and, like, talking about, like, what they expected the cast members mm. of season two to do, and I think giving them advice or something, so...
4: So they wanted to make it, like, a handoff kind of thing.
2: Yeah, they weren't sure, if I guess, if people would, like, be able to, like, follow, like, a new set of cast members, because, like, I guess at the time, like, a season two mm. of a show meant the same people again. Yeah, yeah so... The episode that we watched just one of this season, because it wasn't necessarily one of the more talked about seasons now, was episode 10 called Pro-Choice or Pro-Life, and you can probably guess from that what
4: that episode <laughs> is about. Honestly, I was really surprised that there was an episode about abortion this early into the series.
1: Finding out that I was pregnant was a big downer for me because at this particular point in time in my life, I'm I'm not ready for kids.
0: I think that Tammy's making a a mistake.
1: I consider myself to still be a kid, kid myself.
0: I think she's, you know, covering a mistake by making another
1: mistake.
2: Yeah, I mean, this, yeah, again, is 1993. And this episode really, to me, highlighted abortion as an issue, especially that has not even stayed the same. I think actually, like, regressed in how open people are to talking about it and how much, you know, representation we would see of it in, like, a TV show. Because a lot of the other issues, like race or homosexuality, like, people have more of an understanding. You know, they might not necessarily be more accepting of it, but, like, society has progressed in certain ways, or things have become more visible. And this, honestly, this episode felt more transgressive than anything else I saw, just because we don't see this discussed very often still. Tammy is the the woman who's pregnant, and she is a woman who, like, works in an AIDS clinic. And so, like, her mom even points out, like, I can't believe that someone with your job would still be having unprotected sex in this way. And I don't think she ever mentions like who the father might have been or anything. I, I don't think that's discussed. But she just sits down and has a conversation, and John the, from Kentucky is super conservative. Erin is conservative. And they have a discussion about it that's like pretty civilized, even though some of the people don't agree, don't think she's doing the right thing. It's pretty civilized, and it's like that's not really how we see that conversation playing out most times today, I don't think.
3: What made me sound was it's the same talking points we hear today from conservatives like they have not learned anything there's things about you know i know lots of girls who got abortions and they now they can't have kids it's not a thing unless of course those women got abortions through like back alley abortions and hurt themselves because you know, they
2: couldn't or like didn't feel comfortable getting it legally, like and safely, from a doctor.
3: Yeah. If you go and get it safely, like that's not a thing. And also who's telling you about <laughs> whether they can have kids or not? You know what I mean? And it was just like arguments like that where it's like, Oh, why don't you give the babies a, a chance? Well,
1: I mean, not everyone has right. the opportunity you had growing up it, and everything else. It
0: still, still don't make anything right. You don't make it right.
1: It's not a matter of what you think is right or wrong. It's what you give other people to choose. That's all about America, freedom you
0: know i don't all you can't
1: I, force your opinion on
0: someone i'm not forcing else. my opinion on someone That's but when a, when a woman when a woman when a woman it, it when a woman has an abortion <laughs> you're not giving the baby any choice at all if you want to talk about pro-choice give the baby the choice i don't i don't, haven't i haven't met an aborted baby yet that says yeah i'm glad you aborted me
3: it's just like it's the same talking points that i hear from conservatives today and i'm just it just like makes me so frustrated so i was like frustrated watching this episode
4: yeah yeah. <laughs> so, uh oh. Agree with all of your points. And in particular, the note that the episode ends on was the saddest to me and the most disappointing because it's Tammy's mom saying at the end, the very end of the episode, she says that she's glad that abortion was a crime in the year that she gave birth to Tammy.
3: I remember that, yeah.
4: Tammy's mom was able to make the decision that she wanted to make about her own pregnancy, which was to carry her pregnancy to term and eventually give birth to Tammy. But criminalizing abortion denies women the agency to make that kind of basic healthcare decision for themselves, whether they actually want to have children or not. So, I thought it was unfortunate that this episode ended on that note. And for the record, I just want to state that abortions are necessary healthcare, and it's extremely likely that the completely illegitimate U.S. Supreme Court is going to overturn Roe versus Wade literally in the next month or two and allow states to fully recriminalize abortion. This was one of the episodes that really made me the saddest because it's really kind of very easy to see if you watch this episode how much this country has regressed just during our lifetimes.
2: Yeah, what I found interesting in this show, like, that, I think this episode, I could say it about a lot of episodes, but I think this episode is as good as any to talk about it, is just, like, what this format of show and particularly like what the, these producers chose to like have the tone of the show be it is really interesting. It really is about people talking and and opening up about either who they are or what they're doing, their beliefs or their behavior, or you know major life-altering decisions that you wouldn't normally share with a stranger, especially someone who has pretty different ideals than you. We'll talk about like later episodes where things are not done you know rationally or safely, but for the most part the show i think is fostering a environment where people are encouraged to talk and share their beliefs and everything not fight necessarily like that's part of like reality tv especially certain shows is like the drama the fighting like they obviously are casting people who are coming from different perspectives and hoping that there's conflict because obviously there would be no show if there's no conflict at all but they're not pushing people to like have violent situations or really really confrontation like, it's about talking, and I, I think it's so interesting in a time now when there is very little actual conversation happening between people on one end of a spectrum and another. It, a lot of it's online. A lot of it's just shouting, like, name-calling, like, really, like, nasty stuff that no one benefits from or learns from. And so, yeah, I really did appreciate this show just for the amount of conservative people who, like, were put in the face of someone who is gay or Black or whatever, like, not just like meeting them but having to share space with them and having to learn how this person thinks and and behaves and for the most part talking about that instead of you know like having a, a huge meltdown like and i just don't know if the show is still on politics has become and like so many of these issues have become so polarized that i just i don't even know if these conversations could happen anymore
3: what I found really interesting about this show and why I think it really was so groundbreaking and popular at the time is because they didn't have the internet then. So there's no places that they're having these conversations except maybe like with their own group of friends that they've curated that are maybe like them. So we can, we have the ability to go on social media or go on Reddit or go on different online forums and and have these conversations or at least share our viewpoints but that wasn't really happening then so that's what was really interesting about this show and also for the viewer like the viewer would tune in to be a part of these conversations and it's just kind of like blows your mind when you think about it that like these people don't have the opportunity anywhere else to really get into it with people that are not like them
2: and not even anywhere else on TV, because you don't see a black person and a gay person and a conservative girl living together. Like there was no yeah. sitcom about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's still it's very few things that really like draw in a bunch of different perspectives. Like it's usually like unless people who you all think are the like same. going
4: to college, yeah, you know, and that's one of the few ways in which your yeah. social circle would be forcibly expanded in that way. And Becky, the internet was there, but it was like, it was all like, you know, message boards and like, Usenet In 1992,
3: and... three, it was barely anything. Well,
4: but what I'm saying is we weren't in the era where all of the internet, quote unquote, was just a couple specific multi-billion dollar platforms that were each geared around algorithms designed solely to increase ad revenue. Social scientists talk about this kind of stuff. Those algorithms make it more profitable for people to vehemently, violently disagree with each other other. They're built to make heat not light, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, the, the version of that kind of coming together that exists now, I think is just so much more driven toward anger, and non-communication, you know, not really communicating. Yeah,
2: I don't think there were very many people, like, going online, looking up, like... Change
3: my mind! <laughs> yeah. Was, what's,
2: right. what, what's going on in diversity today? Like, people were, like, on message boards. Like, I love Twister. That That's what I was doing online, at least.
4: <laughs> but I, I don't know, like, in and this also goes, I guess, somewhat to our histories on the internet. But, like, that was one of the things that I loved so much about, like, when I was first going on the internet. Is that, you know, you would be able to go in chat rooms where people were cordial, and you could still disagree with people, but you would learn about someone whose life you had no idea about. And that that just literally does not really exist now. It's not a thing that's really facilitated by this version of the internet.
2: Yeah, and I don't think in, like, 93, when this episode was airing, like, most people were even having, you know, that experience.
4: Oh yeah, like, AOL wasn't really even a thing. This concludes part one of our quest to stop being polite and start being real. Join us in a few days for episode 106, where we'll discuss Real World's legendary San Francisco season and more. We recorded this episode literally the night before the leak of the disastrous new Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade. And in light of that news, we encourage you to donate to the National Network of Abortion Funds at abortionfunds.org. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. And rate and review us five stars or more so more people will hear the show. Follow us on social media at www.yshow on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.